0: If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn there now. We'll be in uh, back in Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there's one close by you somewhere in, in an apron. there there with you. Luke chapter 19. Uh, the gospel of Luke is about three quarters, a little bit more than three quarters through your Bible. You can find it there. If you're not sure where Luke is, your Bible probably has a table of contents. Look there. It'll help you find the page and get to the 19th chapter. And today, uh, we come to the end of a significant section in Luke's Gospel. Uh, for three years now of Jesus' life, He's been roaming. He's been, for three years, He's been preaching and offering hope. And we've heard Him say things like this, Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus has also been healing for these last three years with but a word, a dead man, if you remember, was raised to life. His coffin was no longer needed. With but a word, a bleeding woman was restored to God and able to worship in public for the first time in 18 years. With but a word, a sinful woman with a lifetime of infidelity and an eternity of punishment was forgiven and saved. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus saying to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This Jesus over the course of the last three years of His life, and over the course of the last 15 months of our congregational life here, He has been demanding surrender. Lovingly requiring an abandonment. Luke chapter 14, if any of you who does not bid farewell to all that He has, He cannot follow Me. He cannot be My disciple. Jesus has made it clear that He is the Lord of all. He is the King over creation, and He is the King over human hearts. And he has come, Luke chapter 19, to seek and to save the lost. His kingdom is one of love. His kingdom is one of forgiveness. And though his disciples certainly did not understand everything that he was saying and doing over the past three years, they did know this that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and his message was clear, and that is, Christ is King. Christ is King. And so today we find him at the close. The very last passage of His public ministry is the very last time that we see Jesus not in Jerusalem. So it's a very significant passage. It closes a chapter, not just a chapter in Luke, but a a life chapter of Jesus Jesus that is incredibly important. But the message we'll find is exactly the same. So Luke begins this story in 1928. And when Jesus (coughs) had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when He drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of His disciples, saying, Go into the village that is in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. Okay, so they're on the the cusp, on the fringes, on the edges of Jerusalem. And isn't this an interesting little detail? Jesus asks His disciples for a colt. Why? Why would Jesus ask His disciples for a colt? For the past three years, what has been Jesus' only mode of transportation? His feet. Jesus walks everywhere He goes. Luke doesn't tell us anything other than... Jesus walking from town to town, from village to village. But now, Jesus wants to ride on an animal. But not just any animal, He wants to ride on a colt. Why? Why does He want a colt? Well, these two disciples, these two fellows right here know exactly why. They know exactly why Jesus wants to ride on a colt. You see, with but a word, colt these disciples suddenly knew exactly what was going on. They would think rather immediately of a prophecy that came some 500 years before the time of Jesus. A prophecy that we've already heard this morning in our call to worship. So we have a slide here just to look at this passage again. This comes from Zechariah, a prophet 500 or so years before the time of Jesus. And he prophesies about this king who is going to come to the people. And it says this, Rejoice! As for you also, talking to the people, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now there's a lot here. There's a, there's a ton going on in those, just those three verses alone. But with this word cult, Jesus is making a statement to his disciples. So many so many generations before, so many years before, God had promised peace to his people right here in, in Zechariah chapter 9. That there would be a king who's coming into Jerusalem. He's going to be a righteous king. He's going to be a king who's carrying salvation in his hand. And every square inch, do you see that? From sea to sea, from the center of the earth to the very fringes of the earth, every square inch of the planet is going to look to this king and hail, King, King, you are the king. That, friends, is the point of this passage. Right away, right from the start, we can see that it's plastered on your notes. Nothing to fill in here. The point of the triumphal entry, the point of this entire text, and the point of every word in the Bible is this. Christ is King. Christ is King. And so what Jesus is doing here is very intentional. Super intentional. He's not just asking for a colt because his feet are tired. He's asking for a cult because he has a message for the world. I am that king. I am the one who is going to set things right. I am the one in whom you can put your hope. I am here to restore everything. And notice the mode of this king. He is humble. He is humble and he is mounted on a cult. Right little did these disciples know though that this was but a taste of what was coming this colt Though today they find their king Jesus mounted on a colt it would only be a few days until we find Jesus not mounted to a colt but mounted to a cross but we're not quite there Yet, they think they understand the humility of a king to ride on a colt, but that is just scratching the surface of the humility that we'll see in seven days of Jesus' lifetime. And so here are these two disciples. They're they're teeming with expectation. Remember, these are are Jews that have grown up in tradition, grown up with longing. So when Jesus says, hey, go get a colt, their minds know exactly what he's saying and what he's asking for. And so because of that, they... They get a little giddy, I'm assuming, and they obey Jesus with fervor. Verse 32. So those who were sent, they, they went away and they found it just as He had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, just as Jesus predicted, right? Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Then they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode, And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, so let's stop right there. Jesus has perfectly predicted these events. He once again is is proving his lordship, and these disciples they have nothing left to do but to set Jesus on the colt. And you got to put your mind in the in the you got to put your brain where these guys must have been. What it must have been like to be a first century jew and have a man that you've been following for three years finally say this is the time the time is now generation after generation after generation of jews would have been would have died to see this take place the god appointed god anointed king saddled on a colt looking up at jerusalem and saying i am on my way i am on my way the tension in the air would have been like palpable you could have felt it it was an intensity there and so because of that these disciples realized that their cloaks don't only belong on the colt as a saddle but they belong on the ground as a coronation the very ground that this colt is walking on is not worthy of the king that is saddled upon it and I wonder I wonder right there this, this part of the text slowed me down for a second because I wonder because my heart my heart is very frail it's weak It's dark. It's full of sin. And I often ask, do I have the response that these guys had? They only knew it in part. We know it in full. Am I willing, like these men were willing to do, and throw my garments down before the king? Get down on my knees before this one and herald him as king? Am I throwing down what I have for Christ? That's a question that this text asks us. Do I see Jesus this way? Do I see Jesus as one who doesn't even deserve to have the animal that He's riding on walk on the ground? He's that worthy. He's that good. He's that majestic. He's that majestic. And then Luke, he, he zooms out. right? Luke does this. He, see, I loved Mark two years ago when we did because I'd studied Mark the most and I, I loved his literary ways. But now, now we've dug in luke so much he's a literary genius too he does so many good things this whole time we think it's just jesus and two disciples right this whole time and then all of a sudden now luke in 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 a genius sort of way zooms out and we realize it's not just three people standing around it's a whole multitude of people standing around in verse 37 As he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. See what Luke is doing right there. See, this isn't like the Mount of Transfiguration. Recall that memory, right? This isn't like that mountain. This isn't like Luke chapter 9. That mountain mission was top secret. The only three people that would know about the Mount of Transfiguration would be Peter, James, and John until Jesus died. See, that was all secretive. that No one could know about that. But this mountain is different. See, this time Jesus isn't with just two or three disciples. He's with the whole multitude. No longer is it a secret. No longer is His identity confined to the margins of Galilee. Here is King Jesus with Jerusalem in His sights, with His army, as frail as they may be, all around Him, who have forsaken all things, and they are rejoicing and they are praising God. And we see their message in verse 38. So here they are, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now hear the people are looking back to one of their favorite things to say. One of their most favorite things to say, one of the most famous things that Jews are known to have said, which is, it comes out of Psalm chapter 118. We have another slide here for you. And you saw it, and it was a part of our responsive reading today. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we all responded, right? We bless you from the house of the Lord. The image that's being used here is one of, think of it, so put your head here, ready, ready to get imaginary with me, right? We're all in Jerusalem, pow, you are there, you're there? Right? Doesn't, I wish it was that easy. Uh, and so, you know, we're inside the gates of Jerusalem, we're inside the walls of Jerusalem and we're not looking in, we're looking out. We're looking out and in, out into the land and here is this king and he's coming with his army, and he has just dominated our enemies. These people that are trying to attack us, these people that are trying to ruin us, they, they, they're all dead now that we've defeated them in the name of the Lord. And we see our king leading into the gates and say, Blessed is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so it's this, it's this coronation ceremony. It's the, it's the civilians of Jerusalem calling out to their king and saying, Welcome back. Welcome back to us. Thank You, Lord, that the name of the Lord was with You out there and now we celebrate it with You in here. That's the the original context of that passage. But then things changed rapidly for the Jews because they sinned. They sinned and they sinned again. And then they sinned again. And as God directly promised them in Deuteronomy, that if you disobey me, you will find curses upon your people. That's exactly what happened. Israel, instead of winning battles, began to lose battles. Instead of seeing a king come back, they would not see a king come back. And so for generation after generation after generation, it was no longer a celebration. It was a plea. It was a Instead of looking back to what God had accomplished, it was suddenly now looking forward and pleading with God, will you give us that kind of king again? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord wasn't something that had already happened. It was a prayer that they were desperate for. It was a national prayer. And so look what these disciples are doing. Think about what these disciples are doing. There's so much history with that one line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are saying it about Jesus. right? They're saying, he's here now. Jesus is here. Christ is King. This is Him. All of the culmination, all of the waiting, all of that tension is finally over. Here is our King. Here is Jesus. And notice the consequences. They say peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now let me ask you, does that sound familiar? Peace and glory. Those two themes together. Peace and and glory, Have we seen or heard that phrase together before in the Gospel of Luke? Yes, we have. In Luke chapter 2, another slide right here. Way back, two Christmases ago, we looked at this passage. And it's the passage of the angels talking to the shepherds. Remember this? And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And then listen right here especially. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among uh, those with whom he is pleased. Okay, so next slide real quick. Let's compare these two passages for a second, okay? We're going to look at Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 19, and look at all of these similarities, right? Over here on the left side, we see there's a multitude of on the right side we see a multitude of disciples on the left side we see the angels praising God on the right side we see the disciples praising God on the left side we see their message is glory to God in the highest on the right side their message is glory in the highest and on the left side their message is on earth, peace and then on the right the, the disciples are saying peace in heaven and actually the word order in the original language is in heaven, peace so it's on earth, peace, in heaven, peace so the message here is the same it's the exact same thing these disciples Are doing what the angels were doing 30 years before their time. But what's the difference? Everything is the same except for one small little detail. In Luke chapter 2, the angels, the messengers are from heaven, right? And they're speaking down to the earth, they're declaring it down to the earth, on earth, here is your peace, right? But then in Luke chapter 19, the messengers are where? They're, they're from the earth and they're talking to the heavens. They're saying, Peace in heaven. So the first time it was heaven has come, or peace has come down, and now it's peace is going up. What's the point? What, what, is, what is Luke doing? What are the people? What is the, what is the glory of God doing in this moment? The disciples are saying, Oh, oh, we see it. We see him. Oh, oh, the, the, the glory that you see, the glory that you prophesied, the glory that you promised, the peace that you said was coming, we see it now. We see this peace that has come down to us and now we project it back into worship, back up to the heavens. It is a dance between the angels and the disciples. We see Him, O angels. We see Him, O heavens. We see the one who has come down from His throne to live among us. Blessed is this King who came to us. And so that shows us something. That shows us something in this passage. This is the first thing in your notes. Following Jesus flows from seeing Jesus for who he is. Following Jesus, being a disciple, right? This is the definition of what a disciple is. Following Jesus flows from seeing Jesus for who he is. So one who sees Jesus will follow Jesus. And that's not just in Luke chapter 19 and, and Luke chapter. Too, that's all over the place in, Luke chap- uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And in particular, Luke chapter 18. Just a few short stories ago, David preached on this uh, uh, four or six weeks ago. Uh, there was this blind beggar who was desperately crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And right in the crowd says, shut up, man, shut up. And he's like, no, no, no. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then we see in verse 41 of 18, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And then listen. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed Him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That is a parable of the Christian life. That is a parable for these people. I was once blind. I once could not see, but now I can. Now I can see. And oh how these people in their sight, in their spiritual sight, are preaching the Gospel. You see what they're saying in these lines? They've taken up the preaching of the Gospel themselves. There is a peace that comes. This, This is five or six times mentioned all throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's one of Luke's major themes is that the coming of Jesus gives people peace. What is He talking about? What does He mean by that? Well, for those of us like you and me on the other side of the resurrection, of the cross and resurrection, we know exactly what kind of peace He's talking about. He's not talking just about a political peace that though many of the people in their minds probably is what they're thinking of. He's not just talking about an inner peace right, that that helps us make hard decisions. He's not talking about that sort of peace. It's way bigger than that. The peace that God offers is reconciliation reconciliation what does that word mean it means bringing two people that were apart back together that is the peace that jesus christ offers see the bible tells us the bible tells us that we're separated from god right we are separated from god but, but more than just separated from him unwillingly we are separated from him as rebels we have turned away from him we have run away from him we are his enemies See, humanity by nature is at war with God. We are the problem. Our sins make us guilty before Him. See, our sin is something that God categorically, and I use this word carefully, but but truly, something that God hates. God hates it. It is detestable. It's an abomination to Him. Because God is holy, because God is the very definition of holiness, Anything that is not holy, anything that is not perfect, anything that is anything like that by nature offends God. It arouses his perfect and holy anger against humanity. Therefore, humanity left to ourselves is displeasing to God. That's a shocking thought to the natural human mind that I, by myself, without Jesus Christ, am displeasing to God. That hurts to think about. It's offensive to think about. But enter in the merciful and loving King Jesus Christ. This holy God loves us so much. He cares for us so much that He will place His wrath not upon us, but upon His Son King Jesus. That is what Jesus did on the cross. He died on the cross to take the wrath of God that was upon us, and He bore it Himself. That is the best display of love that we're ever going to find. There is no better love. There is no better truth. And knowing that Jesus Christ took the wrath of God that was on me upon Himself, and now when God looks at me, He does nothing but smile. He looks at me with delight. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, you do not know Jesus, and you've been running from Jesus, listen to me on this. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that He is Lord, that the One who rules over all things, the One who is able to take your sins from you. If you believe in Him, turn from your wickedness, you will be saved. It's the most fantastic message there is to know. It's the most fantastic thing to cling to. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King. He will remove our sin and imperfection and give us His holiness and righteousness. One one Puritan prayer put it so well. Uh, It says, "Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For I know, he says it later, For I know that you cannot make me happy with yourself until you have made me holy like yourself. That's, that's crazy to think about. With, and what, what that, what that um, Puritan is saying is, God, you're not happy with me by myself. And so the only way for you to be happy with me is to make me holy. And how does God make us holy? He sends His Son to us He takes our sin from us and He gives us His holiness. And then all of a sudden, God is incredibly happy with us and smiles upon us. That is the kind of peace that Jesus Christ offers us. Praise God for that peace. So when we see this, when we understand the good news that Jesus offers, guess what? It's not just these disciples in Luke chapter 19 who say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's us too. That is our message. That is our anthem. These are the things that we say. We say, Blessed is this King who has come for us. We worship him. And listen to this. Listen to this. God, God's people are motivated by the gospel into worship. When we hear this message, we are motivated by God into worship for him. Peace and glory and blessed is this. King. and so there from there we draw another principle so simple so simple following jesus largely consists of praising god for jesus so it almost sounds cyclical it is following jesus largely consists of praising god for jesus this is who we are this is what these disciples are doing and, and please forgive me if this is overly simplistic but if, when I look at your life and when you look at mine, the one question that we need to be asking one another is, are we a worshiping people? This is what Remember, David was sharing this last week as one of our values. Are we a, a worshiping people? Are we excited about who Jesus Christ is? If it's true, then our hearts will explode with praise. It, we will be exploding with praise for this God. Every time we gather, whether it's in part or in, as a whole, our agenda is simple the glory of God through the joy of His people. Now, but as this multitude recognizes Jesus and they cry loudly of Christ their King, an apparent opposition remains in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke Your disciples. There's just one small comment here. One thing the Bible makes clear is that Jesus is offensive the message about who Jesus is is offensive. It's not very palatable. He is full of love, yes, absolutely. He is the Lord, Lord of love. Right? God is love. He is overflowing with forgiveness, but let there be no doubt. Jesus makes zero apologies for who he is. He is the king, and there can be no other king. This isn't one king amongst many kings. This isn't one Lord amongst many lords. This is the Lord. The only one. The only king. And the Pharisees can't handle that. They can't handle that. And interestingly, this is the last time we specifically hear of the Pharisees by name. Why? Why would Luke do that? They're they're around in the rest of the story. Why doesn't he call them by name? Because he wants this passage to be the lasting legacy for them. He wants this line that they say to be the resounding line of who they are. There are those who repeatedly rejected Jesus. And as we've seen over the past year of studying Luke, and as we'll continue to see in some other small places, they reject Jesus primarily because of their pride. Because of their pride. And so we see another principle right here in verse 39 alone. Rejecting Jesus largely consists of pride and self-reliance. The reason, the root reason these Pharisees scoff at this scene is their staunch confidence in themselves. They don't see Jesus. They don't see Jesus and say, glory to God in the highest. That's not their reaction to this man on this colt coming in Jerusalem. That's not their reaction. Their reaction is, stop it. This isn't pleasant. This isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. They can't see Him. They refuse to, to kneel down, they believe that it's deserving of rebuke. And so Jesus' return to that is fantastic. I love it. One of my favorite verses in Luke, and the only one of the four Gospel writers who puts this in the, at the end of uh, the, this, uh, this story, Jesus says, and it's downright lethal, right? Verse 40. Jesus answered, so they just said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And His reply, I tell you, if these were silent, if, if these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is saying, you fools! Don't you see it? Don't you see it? Even the rocks know it. Even the rocks, even these inanimate objects which have no life in them have a better understanding of who I am than you do. That's, what he's, that's the assault that he just gave to these Pharisees. You see, creation itself, we could, I wish we could stay here, the creation itself knows about redemption. Creation itself longs for all things to be made right. These men who had breath in their lungs were completely blind and completely dead to the truth about who Jesus was. But the very stones on the ground had an understanding of Christ as King. That is how interwoven redemption is with creation. Even the stones know who Christ is. And I would, even, I would go as far as this. The very purpose of those stones at that time and in that place. You know what their only purpose is? To show the world that Christ is King. You want to know why those stones exist? It's not for geology's sake. It's for God's glory. That's why those stones were there. All of creation, all of creation is screaming Christ is King. And in that way, creation has an advantage against the lost. Because it sees something that not even humans with breath in their lungs can't see, the physical universe projects the glory of God, but these Pharisees don't see it, and their blindness leads to their rejection. And this is something that breaks the the very heart of Jesus. I'm just going to look at one verse here in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And he has a very important statement to make in 42 to 44, but the theme of those three verses is also in Luke chapter 20. We're going to get there in a couple weeks, so I'll save that for then. But what we see here in verse 41 is an interesting, interesting and an essential detail for us. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. See, the city, Jerusalem, it represents its people. It represents the people inside. He's not just talking about the physical buildings, right? He's talking about the people. And in particular, he's talking about the leaders of Jerusalem. Jesus gets close to this city and it breaks His heart to see them so blind to Him. And then He declares a judgment. Like I said, but what we need to see is Jesus' heart. Here is the Son of God weeping. Weeping, weeping, crying over the lostness of those who reject Him. Jesus is distraught over the lost. It's a genuine sadness. And surely, the church's call is the same. This is our last point. Back in the, the third point. Following Jesus is marked by a deep concern for the lost. Verse 41 alone shows us that following Jesus, imitating Christ, being like him in his nature, we're going to be people marked by a deep concern for the lost. And see how this is a place of continual repentance for me. I don't know about you, but I come, I weave in and out of urgency for the lost and casualness for the lost. Some days, it's a burning passion when you teachers are seeing you walking around in your schools and you have a a sea of lost kids around you. Some days, it's a burning passion inside of you. Other days, you just want to get to 3.30. Right? Some days, some days parents, (laughs) we're looking at for 7.30. We don't see our kids as one who desperately need the Gospel. We don't walk into coffee shops Looking at lost souls there before us, we don 't see them that way. We see open table in the corner by myself i don 't want to do anything and talk to anyone right we don 't see we, we come in and out of this, and i 'm guilty of that, and that is a place of continual repentance for me. but know this: those who are made alive in Christ who see Christ as their king, have a broken heart for those who remain dead outside of Christ. We weep with Jesus for the lost. And we plead with God, save them. Save them, write their names down, write their names down on a piece of paper, on your journal, on a three by five, and plead over them. Plead over the lost. Because Jesus, he sees, seen their rejection for three years, every day in a row, and He's still, at the end of His ministry, is weeping because He knows. He knows. Their blindness, their rejection, will lead to ruin. They will be eternally, not, 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 just, not just politically ruined like Jerusalem in AD 70. Yes, he's talking about an immediate ruin in, in this passage. Yes, he is. That temple will fall in about 40 years from Jesus speaking this. But he's talking also about the people, the world, the lostness of our planet. And he weeps over the lost. And so we have a message to them. We have a message to the lost, and that is Christ is King. Kneel to Him. Please. Please kneel to Him. And so I finish just by giving you guys an option, not, not, not a specific request, but an option for daily prayer. This week, one way I thought it was best to apply this passage is, based on the truths of it, let's turn it into a prayer. Speak it into our prayer lives Uh, This week. So, the first one, the first plea we have is uh, based on this passage earlier up is, Father, help me see Jesus. That's simple as day. That's a daily prayer we need to be praying. Help me see Jesus. If you're not a believer, that is that you are asking for Him to change you. Help me see Jesus for the first time. Help me really understand Him and bow to Him as my Lord. If you are a believer, Father, help me see Jesus is help my unbelief. I know who Jesus is, but I often struggle. With it. I often forget I my heart wanders. And I need you as my shepherd to lead me back to green pastures of Christ's glory. Will you do that, Lord, today for me? Okay, so that's the first prayer. The second prayer is Father, renew in me a heart of worship. A renew in my heart uh, worship. Give me a blazing passion to cry out your praises. We have to be. The math is simple. Those who see Jesus, worship Jesus. It's so simple. That is what the text screams at us. These, they're, they're, the English writers are putting exclamation points in verse 37 and 38 for a reason. They are shouting this with a loud voice. They are marked by praise and worship. I know that so often my worship is irreverent and my praise is dull. Father, help me. Father, help me. How cool would it be if Tuesday was dominated by your worship? Dominated by it? your car, your home, your table, your kid's bed, all of it. Consume us, Lord, with a blazing passion for Jesus. And third and final, Father, give me your compassion for the lost. Give me your compassion for the lost. Not all of us have the gift of evangelism. I surely don't. But all of us are called to evangelize. And that will not happen. Listen. You will not witness to the world if you don't care. If you don't care about the lost. So underneath the, the command to make disciples of all nations is a heart for people. Lord, give me a heart for people. Give me a compassion for people. Make me, a man or a woman who weeps over the loss. And don't manufacture it. Trust Him that He'll provide it. Christ is King and the implications of it are endless. And praise God for His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we our hearts our hearts are yours. Our hearts are yours. We are a people for your possession. We gladly submit to you as our King. It is the best submission there is. And though our flesh still tries to war against you, we have new life. We have the new man. We have the Spirit inside of us who is groaning and, and, and crying out, Abba, Father. We love You, mighty King. You have stolen our affections. You've grabbed them. We, with joy, exclaim Your majesty, Your power, Your might, and then these other things. Your humility. Your love. Your tenderness. What warrior king asks children to sit on his lap? What an amazing person you are. You are our king. You are Christ. We worship you, Lord. I pray that you would give us a passion for the lost. Each one of us individually and then. In in our missional communities, and in our church as a whole. Give us a compassion for the lost. May we burn for them. Lord, I plead with You for a heart of worship to be a marker and identifier of this church. It's Your invitation to come to You. Is well received. We have a blazing passion for your Lord. And finally, Lord, those first th- th- those two hinge upon the prayer for us to see you clearly. Give us a clarity of who you are. Reveal again who you are to us. And I know. And we cling to Your Word. Because that is where You show us. That is where You tell us. That is where You give us Your mind, Your thoughts. You tell us who You are. You help us see through Your Word. And so then, Lord, I pray that there would be an ever-increasing hunger for the Bible amongst Your congregation here. Help us run to Your Word tomorrow. Help us want it. Help us want You to speak to us. We love You, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank You for hearing and listening today. Um, one of the things that we are so excited to do, one of the things we're so thankful to do is take communion together, which is communion is an, is an act. It's a symbol. Uh, and as our worship team comes, this is what we get to do every week, which is take the, a piece of bread and a little bit of grape juice which seem like nothing, but what they represent is something beautiful and powerful and forever true. And that is the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if you are a believer, you're going to come to this table and you're going to see bread which represents His body. You're going to see grape juice or or wine that represents His blood. And as you take that bread and you dip it into the juice, hold on to it because what you hold in your hand is just a very symbol. It's a very sign of what Christ has done for us and who we are as people. It is a binding activity. Everyone who goes to this, this table, we celebrate the familyhood of who we are. We are a God's people. We are Christ's people. We are redeemed people. And so because of that, if you are not a Christian, we ask that you abstain and do not come to this table, but wait until everyone else has come and returned to their seats. Or if you are a Christian, a believer who is at odds with another believer, we ask that you make that right immediately. And, and make reconciliation and join us at the table next time. Um, logistically, it'll work. We, we, a row by row, you'll stand up, and you'll go out that way, and you'll come and take it and return into the middle. And feel free to stay standing as we worship uh, God, and we'll come back together and take it together. So hold on to it. Don't take it yet, quite yet.